favorite times of year, not only because our worship team does an extraordinary job of leading us in worship and preparing special music for us and doing all those incredible things, but also, uh, if I could just point out a few people this morning, Scott Boykin and Linda Heath and Gail Wallace and, and Becky Abel and, and Ashley back there in the corner, all wearing scarlet and gray this morning. Just how, Im- how sweet that was for them to show their Buckeye colors and, and just embrace the uh, alternate reason for the season, Jesus first, and, and hopefully, a, now Ashley's a Clemson fan back there, a hard-hearted sinner, but uh, we like him anyway. <laughs> Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul says in verses 4 and 5, that when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God the Father sent his son born of a virgin to release us from the tyranny of the law that we might live by faith and know the grace that comes through the cross that that son would bear in his resurrection when the fullness of time had come. Paul doesn't get nearly enough credit for being a miraculous poet. Here is that fullness of time. It starts in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town, excuse me, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. The fullness of time had come, maybe, we could say. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. The fullness of time has come. We'll look at some more verses here, but I love the way it starts. It starts with taxes. Joseph is recalled to a small village called Bethlehem. And any of you have ever read the uh, prophet Micah before know that there is a prophecy there in Micah chapter 5 that the Messiah would be born in a small hamlet outside of Jerusalem just a couple of miles known as Bethlehem. This was a city that was known as David's city and so anyone who was going to be born in Bethlehem and certainly Joseph who would bring his young bride expectant here with the Savior there are all sorts of implications that are already brewing here from a literary perspective because we know that the city of David is where the Messiah will be born, the one who would reign on David's throne from David's own lineage, the one who would rule from that throne in perfect peace and righteousness. Mary isn't the only thing that's pregnant here. The context is overflowing with clues about who this child will be. And so we're introduced in the very first verse of this passage, to Caesar Augustus. Augustus is a fascinating name. It means the illustrious one. It's a title of divinity. So here we have a story of contrasts that's already occurring just in the very first verse. On the one hand, you have Augustus, who would rule 
what was at the time the most expansive empire the world had ever known. He had so thoroughly dominated all of his enemies in battle that he had ushered in an era known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. There was no one left of any power or stature in the historical earth to challenge the power of Rome. And so there's peace in the land. And for bringing this peace to the Roman Empire, they named Caesar Augustus, the revered one, the illustrious one. And they worshipped him as divine. Tribute was brought from kings and faraway places to honor this august one. And so it happened. In order to revere this semi-deity, or so he proclaimed himself to be out of Rome, and to pay for the expanse of this Roman empire, that taxes had to be collected. And the first step in taking taxes was finding out how many people there were. And for this, we needed a census. We know from ancient Near Eastern literature and from the way that biblical historians from the very first centuries of the church took records of how the Romans did this, that this is a fairly well-established practice. In fact, we have really specific notes from about 100 years after this in the Egyptian provinces of the Roman Empire that everyone would be called back to their hometown, at least all of the males who owned property, had jobs, they would all be taken back so that they could be counted. Now, they didn't have to stay there. Maybe they were only there a couple of days or a couple of weeks. But they would have gone back to their hometown, and they would have been counted. And based on the number of people from each one of these towns, now we know how much we can tax all of those people. It's tax season. The fullness had of, of time come so that the Romans could collect taxes. That's really what's happening here. But there's this fascinating contrast because the one from whom taxes are going to be collected, Joseph, Joseph is not an extremely wealthy man. In fact, he's fairly common. Uh, a woodworker, that term used of him can also mean stone cutter, some mason-like jobs, blue collar. He and his very humble wife are going to give birth to a son. Now, we know the end of the story. We know who that son is. We've been listening in on the conversations that the angels have had with Joseph and with Mary and with Elizabeth and with Zechariah, and later we'll be introduced to the great breadth of things uttered to us by Simeon and by Anna. But those who are reading Luke's gospel for the first time may not know the full breadth of what it is that's happening here in Mary's womb and who this child will be. So the contrast becomes sharper the more we learn about Jesus. Caesar, rich, powerful, revered, worshipped, feared, while the actual ruler of the world about to be born here is frail, poor, unknown. Instead of inhabiting the halls of Rome, this one is laid in a feeding trough for livestock. One will conquer his enemies to consolidate his empire. The other will die for his enemies to convert them to holy siblings. One will rule for a full generation. The other will rule through the ages eternal. The contrasts are sharp and biting already here in the first verse. Anyway, Joseph reports for the census. And, and what's an interesting note, I wouldn't make too much of it, he takes his wife. She's pregnant. Now, 
Uh, he doesn't actually have to do this. This is not part of how ancient censuses, census, I, what's the plural there? Censuses, of collecting taxes, of how that worked. This, I think, further illustrates my belief that Mary really cares, or excuse me, Joseph really cares about Mary. He could have left her back home there in Nazareth with family to look after her, but he takes her along with him. I think he's taking care of her here late in her pregnancy. Now, here's what we find here. And uh, in any given year when we have our set pieces up here, we have our uh, manger scene, and occasionally, if uh, need be, on the night of our Christmas Eve Eve candlelight service, we also have an inn. And uh, the inn may be what we're talking about here in verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Uh, that's a little deceptive. It would have been extremely unlikely that Joseph would have traveled to his family's hometown, Bethlehem, and that anyone would have been expected to stay in an inn, especially a Jew. In a culture that was steeped in hospitality, you would have almost assuredly stayed with some relative. So the word here that's uh, used for inn is kataluma. It's the exact same term that's used for the upper room uh, later in Luke's gospel. It's, it's a, a, an, an adjacent room, a small, not particularly lavish uh, dwelling place. If it were a cold night, they could have brought the livestock in there to keep them safe from the elements or from wolves or from simply wandering off in the middle of the night. It's not a particularly lavish place, but it doesn't really matter what kind of place it is. Whatever kind of place it is, it's humble. And that's the point that's being drawn out here by Luke already in these first few verses of the life of Messiah. It's not a palace. It's not Rome. It's a manger. It's where animals eat and drink. It's where livestock is kept. The God of the universe who hangs the stars in the sky comes down in human flesh in the humblest way possible. Now, it really wouldn't have mattered if he had come to Rome. So just imagine that for a moment, that he had been born uh, as the stepchild, not of Joseph, the day laborer, but maybe, maybe what if he were the stepson of Caesar Augustus himself? And, and Caesar took some of these taxes that were collected from the expanse of the empire and and created a cradle for his stepson that was made of solid gold. And the newborn king would have laid there and thought, you know where I'm from? They paved the streets in this stuff. There was no place on earth that Jesus could have been born that would have duly noted the glory that was his and his alone. From the highest of the heights to the lowest depths and possible imagination here on the earth. It was all low compared to heaven. Luke helps draw that out. And then we find here the response. Uh, the child has just been born, verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. 
and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. Same exact thing which happened to both Joseph and Mary. Angel appears, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not just for the shepherds here in this particular field, not just for the Jews, but for the entirety of the earth. They will all hear this good news. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I absolutely love this. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It's always been the angel's job close to God to proclaim his holiness and grandeur. Some of you can think back to maybe especially Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Day and night, the seraphim flying around the throne of God, burning and majestic, crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's what they were made to do. And here at the first incarnation of Jesus, it's exactly what they're doing. Heaven's song comes down to earth in the cries of the angelic hosts. The angel of the Lord appears to a handful of shepherds and proclaims to them good news. I love this term that's used here. It's euangelizomai. That's a mouthful on Christmas morning. Euangelizomai. We have translated that in English when we came up with our English translations as evangelize. They changed the U to a V. You can kind of hear it, euangelizomai. A term which literally rendered means, I proclaim good news to you. Here he is evangelizing the shepherds. This angel of the Lord, I bring to you good news. By the way, this is our job here at Rocky Mount Bible Church. We have all of our Christmas stuff out, but what is usually at the front, but is now by the door when you walk in, it says, we here at Rocky Mount Bible Church exist for a very specific reason to proclaim God's glory and grace. That's exactly what the angel is doing here for the shepherds over this field outside of Bethlehem. They are proclaiming his glory and grace. They are proclaiming this good news to them. But who is the good news for? What makes it good news? Why is it good news that God has taken on flesh? Let me give you three things just quickly here. And I want you to keep in mind that uh, in the next couple of weeks, we'll get back to our series in the book of Hebrews. Because all of this ties together. The Bible is a remarkably coherent book. First, it teaches us how to be human again. God taking on human flesh teaches us how to be human again. He is the supreme figure of what it means to have been man. If Adam is the first man who has fallen, Christ is the second man who never falls. He embodies in perfection what it means to exist in human form. Secondly, it's how we get a mediator capable of resonating with our humanity. You remember in Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us in all of our temptations while yet he never succumbed. 
by taking on human flesh, he knows exactly what it's like for us to live how we live. That's an extraordinary thing. But maybe the most important, and the one that Luke, I think, would have hit on the hardest is this third one. It's how we get a sacrifice that can actually take away sins. This is good news. God has come in human flesh. And it's good news because for the first time in history, we have a sacrifice that can actually do something for us. Uh, keep your finger there in Luke chapter 2, but turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. I'll give you a little taste of what's coming here in the next couple of weeks and months. We know that Jesus has come in human flesh. We know that he has come as the high priest, the great high priest, greater than Aaron, greater even than Melchizedek and that this great high priest will offer his own body as a sacrifice. Now, think about this just for a moment. We have these shepherds who are out in this field, and they're tending to sheep. Now, uh, what's an interesting observation, not from early Christians in the first century, but from early Jews, those who didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah, is this small Mishratic text which reminds us that we were not allowed to tend these sheep there in this field outside of Jerusalem that they were raised in the wilderness. That it is most likely that these, these little sheep which are being raised here in this field just outside of Jerusalem was the flock from which specifically sacrifices would be made at the temple. And so the good news that is being proclaimed to these shepherds is that there is another little lamb which has come uh, this is Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with human hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. Or look over just a page at Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The reason why it's so important that Jesus comes and takes on human flesh and the reason why this proclamation of good news is actually good news is because for century after century, the Jewish people, the faithful followers of the one true God, had been offering sacrifices for sins that had never actually done anything about sin. And Jesus comes in human flesh the only way he could come in order to offer the right sacrifice, one sacrifice, a sacrifice that not only takes away sin, but one that takes away sin forever. So as long as Jesus will sit on the throne of David, so is as effective the sacrifice that he makes forever. It's good news. It's the best news they've ever heard. Glory to God in the highest. 
because he is working out his plan to redeem humanity to himself. And for this, he is glorified by the angels. Now, I love how this happens here. A, a whole host of angels appear. The angel of the Lord has been uh, fairly clear himself. We have not seen, I think, more than one angel at a time up to this point. But now we get an entire heavenly host. There is absolutely no constraint replaced uh, uh, upon the angels of heaven. There's, there's no restraining them. Uh, God the Father allows them to spill out over the night skies there in the field outside of Bethlehem and say what they would say. It's absolutely superfluous, right? One angel would have done the trick. But now we get all of the armies of heaven gathered together. That's exactly what that means, by the way, that term host. We're talking about an army here. Now, uh, I remember uh, being an older teenager and getting to see Braveheart for the first time, right? Love it. Uh, now, I look back, and maybe it's a little hammy, but you've got to love those scenes when all of the army lines up on one side of the field. Maybe you get this from Lord of the Rings or something else. And before they charge into battle, they're given the great heroic speech. And then what do they do? They all cry out together. Ah! Right? They have some great war cry and their faces are painted and all of that. The angels of heaven, the host, the army of the most high God has spilled out here over the skies in Bethlehem. And like an army assembled on the field of battle, they look across the scene and the great cry that emerges before them as they look across humanity and see the enemies of God, expressly those objects of his wrath, instead of crying war, they cry, peace. <laughs> the only army in history whose war cry is peace. Peace. Peace for who? Now, we've been told already by the angel of the Lord that this is good news for everybody. That is to say that the good news will be euangolizomide. It will be proclaimed as good news to the rich and the poor, to the strong and the weak, to the influential and the unknown, to the black and the white, to those who are of the lineage of David and the most Gentile of all the Gentiles, everyone who would yield in faith, anyone, for them this will be good news. But we know that in actuality, peace doesn't come to everyone. Not everyone will respond in the same way to the good news that's proclaimed to them. It's true today. It was just as true then, 2,000 years ago. There are times when I preach the good news of the gospel and I'm sometimes flustered that someone won't respond. I know that you've shared the gospel before with friends, evangelizing them, proclaiming to them the good news, and you wonder why they don't respond. It's important that we continue to love people patiently and continue to tell them the good news and also realize that getting people to respond to the good news isn't our job proclamation is the job. If the angelic host of heaven can't change the hearts of all men on the earth, maybe you and I can't do that either. Maybe that's a job for God alone. We know that this is 
peace for those with whom he is pleased. Peace for whom? Uh, one scholar will say there's a somber note sounded in the angel's praise. Peace among those on whom his favor rests. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. But we know from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9, that without faith it is impossible to please God. So Christmas does not bring peace to all. This is the judgment, Jesus said, that the light has come into the world and that people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Or as we'll see next week when we talk about Simeon and Anna, Simeon delivers the prophecy, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts might be revealed. There are many who would have sat in that field alongside the shepherds and heard the angelic host proclaim peace for those who would believe who still would not believe. Peace is reserved exclusively for those as we find uh, later in John's gospel, he came into his own and in his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Or Paul would say in Romans 15 that the key that unlocks the treasure chest of God's peace is faith in the promises of God. And so he prays, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in Believing. Now, it's not enough to just believe, vaguely believe. Uh, we've been doing our job in the Abner House of watching as many Christmas movies as possible, right? Uh, we watched White Christmas last night. I've made it through the first half of It's a Wonderful Life, one of my favorite movies. We've watched Elf. The Grinch. I mean, we've really worked through the list of great Christmas movies here. And uh, even some of our great, uh, you know, like office episodes of Christmas, uh, Christmas episodes. I mean, we've run through the gamut. And there's a, an understandable but disturbing theme that runs through an awful lot of those things. Because so few of them are distinctly Christian. And so there's there's this enormous impetus in all of that media to believe as if belief by itself were virtuous. It never says what to believe or in whom to believe, but that there is some kind of nebulous, magical part within your hearts, and if only you would believe, then the magic of Christmas can be imparted to you. Well, we know from reading scripture that that's not actually true. That I believe is not enough because I can believe things that are not true. I could believe, inspired that Ohio State beat Kentucky yesterday in basketball, I could believe with all my heart that I could dunk a basketball, but it is never going to happen, right? To have belief alone is not enough. It's the object of your belief that changes your life. And the kind of belief that Luke is alluding to and that John is expressly stating and that Paul is talking about in Romans 15 is a belief in the promises of God. Do you have enough trust in him 
So that when he says, I will bring you to me and I will give you Messiah and he will make you right so that you can stay with me forever. Do you believe that? Do you believe in him? Do you believe that Jesus, the Christ, is uniquely capable of fulfilling in his own person all of the promises that have been accrued up to this point? It's exactly what the angel is saying here in Luke chapter 2 when he talks about Jesus in verse 10. Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David. We're already talking about somebody royal. A savior, one who can offer a sacrifice to actually save you from your sins, who is the Christ. Christ being the New Testament term, therefore Messiah, the long-appointed ruler over the kingdom of God, who in justice and peace and righteousness will set the world right. He is who? Fourthly, he is the Lord. That's the substance of our belief. That's what we're driving at here during the season. Not a vague, magical belief in anything, but a specific, miraculous belief in the Christ. Do you believe? There is for you in this season peace. It's peace. It's for you. And there is hope that is for you. And there is the glory of the Lord shining around you. If you would accept in belief, by faith, and trust the promises that God is fulfilling here in Luke chapter 2 at the birth of Jesus Christ. This whole series We've been talking about the necessity of having someone come to deliver us. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. We talked about how this hope came to Joseph, um, an unknown carpenter who would be the stepfather of Jesus, and how this hope has come to Mary, a young, humble girl, who will bear a son who elevates the humble. We talked about how this hope would come to Israel. But we read in Luke chapter 2 that this hope has not just come to those, it's come to anyone who would yield in belief. Do you believe? Do you believe? I read a book years ago about evangelism in the early church. How the early church, in the first couple of centuries, talked about belief and talked about how Jesus changes our life. And one of the most startling instances in that book, the author, who's a prominent New Testament scholar, says, you know, the, the early church would never have asked the question, when did you believe? They would never really ask that question. That's a question we ask a lot here. Even when you become a member at Rocky Mount Bible Church, we ask you, when did you believe? For them, that was virtually an incoherent question. Here's the one they asked. Do you believe? Right now, do you believe? Are you a believer in the promises of God fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ? We're asking you that question explicitly this morning. And it's a question that I hope keeps you awake at night, not just in the next couple of nights, but certainly through Christmas. Do I believe? Not in something ethereal, uh, nameless, untethered, floating in the void. 
But do I believe that God miraculously took on human flesh to offer a single sacrifice that can actually do something about my greatest problem? And that he can bring me in holiness, glorified, to stand with God in his glory. Well, we've reached the turning point at the story of human beings. And we're only in Luke chapter (laughs) 2. One that started in the Garden of Eden and quickly dissolved into pain and descended into hopelessness. And now God is framing his victory over history and the redemption of all of his enemies into that of sons and daughters. Now here's how the shepherds respond. And I love this in uh, verse 15 is where we start. Now when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. You remember that the sign for the shepherds was not a star. The sign for the shepherds was a young child wrapped in swaddling cloths. And they went with haste. I bet they did. (laughs) And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. Now, I love this, absolutely. If in this passage, the angels are the first evangelists, the shepherds are the second. They have been so profoundly moved by what's happened in their lives that they cannot keep it to themselves. Isn't that true for all believers who take the time to reflect on what God has done for them? They absolutely cannot keep it to themselves. Tomorrow night, we're going to gather here and we're going to celebrate in praying and in singing. And the kids are going to be dressed up in all of their adorable costumes and we'll have a short devotional directly from Scripture. It is a great opportunity for you to walk next door to your neighbor's house, one who doesn't already have plans at another church somewhere else, and say, we'd love for you to come with us. To project the kind of confidence and joy that says, you know what? I believe in the one who can actually change things. Let me tell you something about him. Because those who have been changed by Christ absolutely cannot, do not have the capacity to keep it to themselves. All who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them, but Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I love this. They worship, they praise, they give God great, great glory here. They magnify his name. A lot has been made about shepherds. If you read eight commentaries, they'll give you nine different opinions on the social status of shepherds. They were poor. They were social outcasts. They were criminals. They were, they were, they were. (laughs) I'm not sure that any of that actually matters, if we're being honest. Why does the gospel first come to shepherds? If I had to guess, for two reasons. And these are not... uh, specifically illuminated in this exact passage. I'm going to give you some marginal notes here. Two reasons why I think the gospel first comes here to shepherds out in the field. First, reason number one, uh, the promise of the one who would rule on David's throne, right? Uh, It's David's throne, David, who was the shepherd. I think we are coming full circle now on the promise. The shepherd who would become king, of his line, that king has come. 
I think this is a clear allusion to the Davidic covenant and a fulfillment of that promise made a millennium earlier, now fulfilled here in the first century. Secondly, if uh, the first was about the shepherd who would become a king, the second is that there is a king who would become a shepherd. In John 14, it's absolutely fascinating and just a little bit scandalous of the way that Jesus describes himself. King of all glory, descendant of David, he who will sit on the throne of his forefather and rule forever. What is he like to his people? He's a shepherd wrangling sheep. Shepherds aren't down here, right? For Jesus, shepherds are up here. Shepherds take care of people. That's what he's going to do in eternal and spiritually lasting ways. Now, it's worth wrestling with this. What was the response of the shepherds? It was the same exact response from Joseph and the same response from Mary and the same response from Zechariah and Elizabeth and the same response we'll get from Simeon and Anna. All of them confronted with the truth claims of the gospel worshipped they praised him they, they glorified him they magnified his name they blessed his holy presence they couldn't keep it in now here's what's going to happen we're going to sing again here in just a moment we're going to sing something that you're familiar with as soon as the service is over I need your help in the fellowship hall we're going to start setting up tables and chairs so that we can get ready for tomorrow night. So uh, guys, especially if you'll go back there and help, we've got to get some stuff moved around to get ready for tomorrow. We need to bring some more chairs into the sanctuary. Tomorrow we're going to make all of our desserts. And goodness, I think I asked uh, for some desserts in that sign-up sheet and people were writing on the back of the thing. We have a, a lot of sugar coming tomorrow night. <laughs> I'm really happy about that. Some of you may not be as happy. And then we'll go into Christmas Eve. I think most people have Christmas Eve off. And then Christmas Day is absolute bananas for us. We go to Raleigh, we'll see my in-laws and all the cousins and all the... And we move so fast that if you don't take a moment, I mean intentionally set apart some time between now and then, you could have a Christian Christmas and never actually spend any time praising him for what he's done. You got to pump the brakes. One of the great, I think when we look back at this era of the church, and I'm not a great church history scholar, but I wonder if Christ will tarry for another thousand years and we look back on this particular era of the church, the things that they will say about us were some of them were extremely wealthy while their brothers were very, very poor. And also they never, ever slowed down. They were so busy entertaining themselves. <laughs> when did they ever worship? So we're going to ask you to worship, even just in this song. I'm going to have the worship team come up here, and we're going to sing. And you know the words to this song. And I'm going to ask you to sing those words, not like you're thinking about putting up tables and chairs, which I do need your help with in a minute, and not like you're thinking about, my goodness, when are we going to get some lunch? Right? But thinking about this one who has come, fully God and fully man, to bring us to heaven to live with him forever.